Hello, my name is Morgan Gray, and welcome back to the Afrocentric Podcast. Southern trees. Barren, strange fruit. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar trees We don't funk with racism. We don't funk with people who don't support the LGBTQ plus community. And baby, we damn sure don't funk with anybody who don't love a beautiful black queen, baby. You see this tape? You don't let nobody act black and then go home and be white? It only takes a little bit of white brainwash to activate the cool chip in the average Negro. And a lot of white folk have demonstrated eloquently that they don't have no sense. And we are back with the Afrocentric podcast. I'm here with everybody's favorite speaker, um, the host, my co-host for the Snow Bunny Crisis episode, Miss Kimara Sneed. Hi, Key. Hey, y'all. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I know the niggas listening are having a fantastic time. Well, I hope they are. Um, Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself before we hop into this question? Okay. Well, my name is Kimara Sneed. I am a PhD candidate. And um, my concentration, I focus on African-American agriculture. 20th century African-American agriculture. Yeah, I think you're perfect for this segment, this series of black historians um, focusing on black history. Oh, thank you. Yeah, happy Black History Month to uh, you. Happy Black History Month to y'all, yeah. okay? Yesterday, <laughs> we was telling people happy, we was telling white people happy Black History Month, and they were so nervous. <laughs> they were so nervous. I'm praying for them as well as praying for y'all. So let's go ahead and hop into this first question. And the first question is, after emancipation, how did the day-to-day life of newly freed slaves change? It didn't change, really, other than the fact that, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments were passed. So, you know, 13th abolished slavery, 14th granted them citizenship rights, and 15th granted uh, black men the right to vote, right? Mm-hmm. So aside from that, nothing really changed, right? Because... After Reconstruction, I mean, after the Civil War, you have this period of Reconstruction where they're trying to integrate the South back into the Union. The South is economically devastated, mm-hmm. right? Their um, main source of labor has been freed. And, you know, the, the, the class system, the old guard, I mean, they're essentially broken penniless. Or if they're not broken penniless, they're just lost in war. They just lost to the war. 
or they're 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 really essentially the South is scrambling trying to rebuild itself in all facets of its life. So the only thing that really the only thing that really changed is that now there was a legal now slavery was instituted under a completely different and altogether legal system sharecropping right Mm -hmm. that is to say that slavery wasn't you know legal and justified before right because that's why the south got into the civil war right Mm -hmm. started so introduced the civil war but yeah so you're seeing you're just seeing freed blacks put into an altogether different not put into an altogether different we're put into a different put into another cycle of peonage they're put into a cycle of debt you have sharecropping right Mm mm-hmm you have Jim Crow, which essentially makes segregation and racial discrimination a legal practice, right? Mm-hmm. Separate but equal, all up under that, under that umbrella. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm saying all of this, I'm rambling on just to really say that nothing really changed. Nothing changed. And also, the thing that did change was the laws. The laws definitely changed. And I do want to hop into the Jim Crow laws as well as the literacy test and the grandfather clause and so on and so forth. Because honestly, what people fail to realize is that um, they made it systemically hard for black people to vote during this time period, especially with these literacy tests. And I just want to point it out. Um, they stupid as fuck. So they would make black people go in and prove to get their white man paperwork um, how, in fact, they could read. So they would make them do stupid ass shit. Like, Key, they'll, 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 you'll walk up there and you like, hello, sir, I'd like to vote. They're like, okay, let me let me see if you is eligible to vote. And they pull out a jar of jelly beans. And they say, look here at this jar of jelly beans. If you can tell me how many jelly beans in this jar, you can vote. And you might look at that jelly bean and say, oh, it's 26 of them in there. And he's like, no, it's 275, you wrong. And it's written the 26 in there and you can't go vote. And you got to take that ass back home. And if you contest it, well, you might just end up dead or in prison, if not worse. So it's just small things like you going to go try to go vote and they like read the constitution, read this to me right. out loud. Mm-hmm. And they and you you may have read it completely right and they'll still be like, nah, bitch, that ain't what we asked for. And they gonna send your ass home. So it was extremely systemically hard for niggas to get where they needed to go. Today I'm gonna give you five of the most outrageous Jim Crow laws. I wonder if they still affect us today. If you don't know, Jim Crow was never a real person. It was a character invented in a minstrel show to try to emphasize the inferiority of black people. Jim Crow laws are something that was created in the southern states that was intentionally trying to keep black people down. First one that blows my mind is never assert or even insinuate that a white person is lying. The second one is never lay claim to or even demonstrate superior knowledge and intelligence towards a white person. Third, never curse at a white person. Fourth, never laugh at a white person. Man, this is sounding like TikTok. Number five, and for sure the one that hit me the hardest, is never show love and affection to another black person in public. This was the law. Let that sink in. Sharecropping is something that, again, slavery by a different name, and essentially it was the act of and newly free, newly freed slaves going in and working the fields for a low price, as well as them renting out their tools, as well as splitting a profit amongst themselves and the uh, owners. Mm-hmm. And it was like a complete cycle of debt. 
over yes. and over again. And yes. it kept them oppressed. It kept them from very stagnated to be able to move up financially. So I guess my question is, is like, along with sharecropping as well as Jim Crow laws, how did that set us back? Oh, that's a good question. So, like you mentioned before with sharecropping, it's uh, free blacks were kept in this um, perpetual cycle of debt. So they're entering into contracts that they really have no true understanding of that just further exploits them. Uh, Jim Crow laws uh, essentially, um, I want to say, played on white fears of Black upward mobility. And retaliation. And retaliation. And so, I mean, we can go on and on about this. We can even get into the lost cause, but I think that's probably (laughs) for a conversation for a different day. But uh, in all honesty, I mean, it, it, it... it set us back because again we're we're operating under um, we're operating under a system that is comparable to slavery, right? And on top of that, uh, we're dealing with or freed blacks are dealing with a lot of Southern whites who don't want to disrupt the status quo, who don't want to who who are still clinging on to this memory of the old South, right? The good old days, the good old days, right? Yeah. And so, you yeah. You my butt, I beat your ass. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, can we say that it set us back or it, it, did it ever completely move free blacks forward? Uh, despite the, despite the, a lot of the um, strides that were made, because we do have this emergence of black politicians, um, people in positions of power, but but I'd say I wouldn't say my me personally, I wouldn't say that it set free blacks back so much as it in many ways kept them stagnant. Now, before we talk about the black cabinet, uh, let's do some not so fun facts about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and uh, the New Deal. OK, yeah. Uh, let's start with the fact that Roosevelt's administration did not plan to end segregation or extend civil rights to black Americans. Okay, He declined to support legislation making lynching a federal offense, as well as legislation banning the use of the poll tax in the South. Remember, that was used to disenfranchise black people, right? And he did all of this or did not do any of this because he wanted to maintain the support of the white Southern Democrats. Okay, They were a very powerful voting block at the time. Okay. Now, some not-so-fun facts about the New Deal that he passed, okay? Now, yes, some New Deal programs benefited black people, okay? But there were also New Deal programs that discriminated against black people. In fact, it was written into the program itself to discriminate against black people. I'm looking at you, Housing Act and FHA. Yeah, okay. The existing New Deal programs 
targeting discrimination were rarely enforced in the South. Yeah. So they were like, I know we're not supposed to discriminate against you, but it's fine. It's fine. And most New Deal programs focused on men, and it just assumed that women would benefit from them. Okay. And the fact that nearly all of the major New Deal labor-related programs and reforms excluded agriculture and domestic labor greatly affected women. In fact, no other group was more impacted by this stipulation than, can you guess? Did you say black women? Because you'd be correct. Now, considering that uh, Roosevelt was wooing the white Southern Democrats like he was a white suffragette, uh, would it surprise you that he had a council of black advisors? Well, he did, yes. Like we mentioned before, they were called the Black Cabinet an informal collection of black people that advised him during the Great Depression and on his New Deal acts. Okay? He appointed a large number of black people to second-level positions, and by the mid-1930s, there were about 45 black people working in the New Deal agencies. Officially, this group called themselves the Federal Council on Negro Affairs, but it was popularly known as FDR's Black Cabinet. The group worked officially and unofficially in their agencies to provide insight into the needs of black people. The Black Brain Trust worked to ensure that black people received at least 10% of the welfare funds through programs like the Works Projects Administration, or WPA, and the National Youth Administration, NYA, and were able to set up separate all-black units with the same pay and conditions. The WPA, they created agencies which also created agencies that black people could work for, most notably the Federal Writers Project, which paid its workers $20 a week. The Slave Narrative Collection of the Federal Writers Project, this stands as one of the most enduring and noteworthy achievements of the WPA. The leaders associated with the Black Cabinet are often credited with laying the foundation of the Civil Rights Movement. And yet, how many of us knew they even existed? So, one thing I do want to highlight about this period is the immense amount of Black success that happened that you briefly did. Um, speak upon because we know that one of our first black politicians was actually someone from Mississippi um, and I think he was like the first black person to be elected into Congress but I know that there were a bunch of black millionaires during this time period as well as a black pe a lot of black people getting the fuck ASAP and this is where you get the great migration 
do you yeah you can go ahead and talk on it yeah so the great migration the great migration was in many in many free blacks minds the great migration was a chance to escape this cycle of debt that again sharecropping and tenant farming put them in right it was an idea to seek other opportunities assimilate more into a more industrialized America, right? Mm -hmm. um, America is quickly becoming industrialized. Um, a way to get out, a way to get out from under the thumb of, again, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, in many cases, that is actually uh, condoned by these Southern states, by their government. So the Great Migration was just, an, the Great Migration was a way for free Blacks to become upwardly mobile socioeconomically but unfortunately a lot of a lot of the discrimination that they faced in the south was also followed followed yeah. them up north so rather than face it in say an ur uh, a rural setting as you would in the south because it's mostly agriculture now you're facing it in cities where the racism is much more the racism is urban and the racism becomes much more I'd, I'd argue it that it's very, it becomes much more environmental, right? So mm -hmm. so you're saying it's more social racism. How so? What do you mean by that? Okay, so like in the South, of course, you have like institutional racism, which is systemically built into the South. But mm -hmm. like um, the more black people move up North, it kind of like modernizes the racism and it shifts in a way where it's like, social racism more out like they're verbally attacking people as well as like like socially oppressing them instead of trying to like find ways to institutionally oppress them if that makes sense i, I feel like I, I feel like you can make that argument that it takes place down here and that it took place down here in the south as well mm -hmm. um there's this book by Mark Schultz, I believe that's his name. Um, it's a book that I had to read in one of my classes. Um, the title escapes me, and hopefully I'm saying the historian's names right. But um, the book talked about, um, it talked about, or it uses rural Georgia um, and urban Georgia as a, um, as, a, as a case study. And it talked about essentially how segregation was blurred um, especially in, in the rural South. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these relationships, a lot of these interracial relationships were much more nuanced compared to going into more urban areas or going into the cities where it's much more, uh, it's much more rigid, much more structured and much more heavily enforced. Wouldn't it be because of like the money down here in the rural areas in the South, white people are poor along with poor black people. So I could see why those lines would be blurred because they're going through the same thing. I mean, you could say that too. And you can also say that there isn't, that they don't have, I won't say that they don't have the manpower or, but there really isn't a huge incentive to enforce those enforce segregation in rural areas as it would be say in the city. Would you say it's because of the mindset of like the black people that stayed in the South? Like they already had a slave mentality. So there was no need to enforce it because they was in the same location location versus someone who migrated up North and feels like there's an opportunity to be able to um, interfere and intermingle. Hmm. I, I don't think I'd say that. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think, I don't think I'd say that because I think that for some people, this, for some people, sometimes it's really just the devil you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the devil that you don't know. But I mean, I, 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 I I can't say that every every freed black who stayed in the South had a reprobate mind fit. What are some examples of discrimination and violence that African Americans experienced immediately after the Civil War and Reconstruction? Right. So in addition to Jim Crow laws, which um, got their namesake from um, a, uh, a minstrel sheet, a minstrel sheet, minstrel sheet show. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. So, in addition to Jim Crow uh, getting his namesake from a uh, um, traveling minstrelsy show, um, they're also dealing with um, separate but equal, which was um, which was legally enforced, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're dealing with they're they're dealing with stuff like uh, they're dealing with stuff like the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. um, that came into prominence. Um, it initially started as a uh, fraternal organization that were found that was founded by Civil War veterans, um, and then it just well, I think that I, don't hold me to it because I'm not a uh, historian of uh, of um, <laughs> that know uh, of, uh, of of terrorist groups, hate groups. Uh, don't know much about the Ku Klux Klan. Except for the fact that they've gone through, uh, they've gone through a couple um, reemergencies, resurgences, yes. Yep. But uh, the beginnings of it was a fraternal organization that was dedicated to reinforcing this, um, reinforcing white supremacy. So, who you think was the real Ku Klux Klan, like the real ones, the first wave of the Ku Klux Klan, or the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan? <sighs> I, uh, mm. I, you don't know, I. Cause you you I'm okay. So there there's such strange changes. So the first original Ku Klux Klan, they folk the they mainly focus on like the oppression of black people, make sure that they were fearful. Mm-hmm. But then the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan, which emerged like in the sixties, the fifties and sixties, they hated everybody. There was the Jews, it was the gays, it was everybody. But I mean I think that this isn't I think that this is an aspect that's also not really touched upon at the turn of the century. Uh, the fact that there was also rampant anti-Semitism going on in the South as well. Yeah. Um, still I, to this day. Still to this day. Um, so I encourage you guys uh, to check out Without Sanctuary, um, an online um, an online exhibit that uh, is, a, is a collection of postcards, pictures, what have you of lynchings and some of them are and 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 yes the Ku Klux Klan we we mostly associate them with their um with their with their uh their targeting of uh black blacks but no they they targeted other anybody who wasn't white right they targeted other ethnicities too other groups as well I also want to highlight the fact that the Ku Klux Klan would not be the Ku Klux Klan without the women within their organization because during the first round of the Ku Klux Klan, the women were not allowed to be a part of it, but they were the ones who were doing the work within the private sector. And then they were the ones creating the costumes. They were doing the meeting, the mobilizing. And then when the second wave in, that's when they started indoctrinating the children. That's when they were allowed to be able to put on their nice white robes as well. And I feel like 
we often skip over the role that white women play within these hate groups. Like the daughters of the um, Confederate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> the American Revolution. The daughters of the Confederates. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that especially played a role in establishing a lot of these uh, Confederate monuments, too. Again, that's just a conversation. That's a very, that's a very detailed conversation for another day. But yeah, so yeah, so um, back to the first, back to the uh, original question. Yeah, so they're dealing with um, segregation, legally enforced segregation. They're dealing with hate groups. Um, yeah. <sighs> what? What else are? I wanted to talk about the red record. Just because um, I feel like that is one of the greatest examples of like black women. Because the red record was written by Ida B. Wells, if I'm correct. Red record. Yeah, I think so. Yes. 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 So the red record was published in 1985, and the main goal was to press the case against lynching as a mm-hmm. form of upholding justice. Mm-hmm. So um, Ida B. Wells is a native of Mississippi, mm-hmm. if anybody doesn't know. And her story is amazing because uh, she grew up super religious. She ends up becoming a school teacher. She moves to Memphis, and then she witnessed the death of two of her friends um, that were brutally murdered just because they had a competing grocery store that uh, a white owner of a grocery store felt intimidated by and they killed him. So she started to create these records of lynchings throughout the South and it's a really great and grotesque example of the brutality that happened to black people. And I think when black people think about lynching or Americans think about lynching, they only think about a noose. But lynchings happen. Lynching really is just like the act of just like brutalizing black people. And it can get very, very dark. Right. Yes. Um, Ida B. Wells and I think Frederick Douglass were huge, were um, were huge advocates against anti-lynching. Were really called out, um, really called out, um, yeah, lynchings. Um, and I think what people also have to understand too is that lynchings were public spectacles. Yes. Now let's talk about the history of the picnic because the niggas don't know the word picnic come from pick a nigga. You, you pick a niggas. Okay. So what happened was is during lynchings. Now listen, this is that good history that they don't put in the school books. They put the little blanket down on the ground. And mama had packed all the nice little sandwiches and the lemonade and the sweet tea. And they sit out there by the dozens as they watch the brutalized lynching and murder of black men. And they would, this was a public spectacle. It was a picnic. And the craziest thing is that I don't think people realize that these crackers would take pieces of burning flesh and keep them as mementos. And they also um, castrated. They cut the dicks off of black men. And you know what? They lynched. Let me just say this. They lynched everybody. They lynched the Jews. They lynched the gays. They was lynched. Okay? Black men were the only ones that were castrated during these lynchings. Hmm. I'm done. (laughs) Well, (laughs) okay. So... About the so you're right so you are def- most definitely right on the um, public spectacle so yes again look at without sanctuary postcards pictures what have you 
they were literally having celebrations out there. It was like a, it was, it was. It was the 4th of July. Yes. Fireworks. Um, they were, they were. Lamb chops. The, in order to attract, uh, in order to attract customers for their businesses, they would take some of these parts, um, put them in jars and put them in front in the windows of their stores. No, because let's just talk about the postcards. Dear Paul, I'm having so much fun wishing you were here. We caught a big nigger. Love you, Jim Bob. Face ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I honestly, I, I don't. I really wouldn't know how to respond to getting a postcard like that. Well, they did. Well, they did. But I just know if I was in their position, I don't think I'd know how to like respond to that. But yeah, um, it's yeah, it's. I think, and I also think what we have to understand, too, is that lynchings aren't that far off. Lynchings are, is it? I think what a lot of people have to understand is um, we're dealing with, despite the fact that we're, we're dealing with the um, post-Civil War here in terms, of, in terms of time period, a lot of stuff that's going, a lot of stuff that was going on in this time, when it ended, it, it's not that far off from today. And it's that's, still here. It's just under a different name. And that's and that and I think that's something that a lot of people have to take into consideration. Like they were they they, they were still lynching well up into the mid twentieth century. <laughs> Kimara, you need to stop. It was not it was so long ago. You need to forget <laughs> it. You need to let that hurt go. Who hurt you? It wasn't me. You see? It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. So when we're talking about violence against black people, what are some examples in which you can think of where it's just like heinous or just different, a spectacle? Uh, I mean, kind of with uh, reinforcing Jim Crow, right, where you'll have the Ku Klux Klan or you'll have other groups or you'll just have white men in general who may not be affiliated with either of these groups just antagonizing blacks freed blacks right so what when it comes to voting right so they'll discourage them from voting from what um by what antagonizing them at their houses burning crosses beating them whipping them that's what that's what uh, the ku klux klan would do or when it comes or when it came to voting and they're going to the polls and you'll just see people standing there with weapons with guns like intimidating them like if you go to this poll you risk pain of death, right? Or you risk grievous bodily harm. Um, and to touch back on this um, issue with lynching, um, I can give an example that isn't necess- that, that that isn't black. Um, one of the most famous examples in Georgia, where I'm from, is uh, the lynching of Leo Frank. And this happened during a time where there was rampant anti-Semitism going on in Atlanta. So Leo Frank was a Jewish businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, uh, convicted of killing, uh, Mary Fagan, who was a teenage, um, teenage worker at his factory, white. Um, and so I found out that what they would do is when they would, uh, publish a picture of him in the newspaper, for instance, they would like intentionally highlight, like they would intentionally, um, manipulate his image so as to appear much more menacing. So, uh, they would, um, like, for instance, they'd probably make his eyes bigger, make his eyes darker, something to that extent to make him appear much more menacing and to also play into those anti-Semitic sentiments, right? And so what happened was that um, 
<laughs> Funnily enough, I also read, and I do not know how true this is, I also read that there was actually evidence to suggest that his uh, the security guard, who was black, was actually responsible for Mary Baker's death. Oh, wow. And so... So what happened was um, a group of white men actually broke him out of prison and took him to Milledgeville and they lynched him. And apparently the governor was quite aware of this. Uh-huh. They usually are. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one instance of, you know, lynching not just being a black thing, even though it is primarily associated with black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but just understanding that there were other ethnicities, there were other marginalized groups that were experiencing this. But, you know, African-Americans by by, by large, large are, 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 I would say, I'm not going to say they're the main recipients of it, but they're they the are. One, but just call a spade a spade. You're going to have to. If they walk like a duck and they quack like a dog, then well, goddamn. I guess we can, I guess with that being said, we can settle it on that then. <laughs> some black person, man or woman being burnt and, and, and lynched. That's, that's unforgettable. That's insane. That's, it's a form of insanity. It, it's it's airborne. It's it's it's, it's a sickness. But with spectacle lynchings, where they were an event, and they would announce the lynching, they would order special trains because you know everybody wanted to see this lynching, and so they could get people to the lynching site. They'd sell tickets. They would announce it in church, you know. So they, you know they're they're reading the announcements. Oh, and so um, on Easter Sunday we're going to have da 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 da. What are the pros and cons of segregation for the black community? <laughs> now that's a very loaded question. Um, I guess a pro could be that the, I mean, not even, I guess it is a pro me, a pro of this is that it, it keeps the money circulating within the black community. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there is that sense of community. You establish those. You establish those relationships with um, with other members, right? <sighs> A con of segregation. Well, you didn't have access to all the resources. Right, you didn't have access to all the resources. You didn't have access to all the opportunities. And I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Tulsa, right? Yeah. I feel like Tulsa is just a prime example of this. Well, Even though we're jumping far ahead, I mean. Let's talk about, like, Booker T. Booker T. Washington. In 1895, Booker T. Washington delivered his famous Atlanta Compromise speech at the Cotton States and International Exposition in Atlanta. Washington's speech responded to the Negro problem in America and basically stated that Reconstruction and enfranchising the Negro had been a failure. But Washington promised his audience that he would encourage black to become proficient in agriculture and mechanics and commerce and domestic service. And his speech was steeped in Protestant values and his accommodationist approach to African-Americans. Washington also eased white America's fears about black desire for social integration by stating that both races could be as separate as the fingers, but come together as one like the hand for all things essential for mutual progress. 
because I feel like he kind of supported segregation in a way. You know, Booker T is interesting to me. Um, he's interesting. Well, not only is he not only is he um, a major um, a major um, historical actor in what I study in, in regards to I study uh, African American agriculture. But I sometimes, you know, when when I when I was younger, mm-hmm. I used to think that Booker T was really just a proponent of, you know, um, I really thought he was pandering, if I'm being honest, to white people. Right. I can. I think so, that's like a common stereotype that a lot of black people have. Right. So so when you read the Atlanta Compromise, you think, oh my goodness, he's over here just pandering. He we're doing this, that, and the third. But then and 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 then when you compare but but you all but you have to look at it like this because it's easy to call him an uncle tom or you know whatever stereotype it is and compare and like easily draw comparisons between him and wb du bois right well we're gonna have to do that anyway right but i think what you have to do you have to look at their upbringing right yeah i think it's easy to call him such but you have to understand that where he lived where he lived where he grew up from this man was a former slave yes he was and to actually it had to actually work his way up to fight to 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 establish an institution that's still in existence today Mm -hmm. that is highly regarded Mm -hmm. and still is still is to 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 train black men to be and able to, women, they, to become like agricultural extension, right? Agricultural extension agents praising, you know, uh, championing championing industrial education, and actually being responsible for the cooperative extension service um, integrating in the early twentieth century. I think that speaks a lot. I okay, so pe- okay, they say that people in the south kind of align more with uh booker t washington's ideology people up in the north idea uh like they align themselves with w.e.b du bois's ideology right but i think that it is something to say when he like his school for example completely built off of the labor of black people um teaching them like ways to be able to be self-sufficient how to create different types of um trades how to like be able to grow like you said their own foods like it that is like the ideal segregation that is like what we want essentially and i think that's something that is still perpetrated and wanted today i know that like when um dr umar talks about the idea of like a black state he references um like booker t washington's ideology a lot even his school is named after him so like or is it a fridge it's frederick douglas it's frederick douglas but marcus garvey (laughs) yeah but you can see like how his ideology alludes to booker t's ideology and that it is it's so smart and so self-sufficient but i think that like the martin luther king influenced so many black people to want to be integrated and like not see that they could actually be self-sufficient within themselves Mm, right 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 and that isn't to say that what Martin Luther King, you know, champion wasn't wrong, but you know, key even on his deathbed, he I know, I know. Even though he, he does, he regrets the shit he did. I mean, there are the he, he, <laughs> right, right. So he, so he, so he did have some regrets about integration. Um, that isn't to say that you know, in some instances, you know, 
we we that isn't to say that you know integration hasn't caused us to you know get opportunities that we normally wouldn't have gotten but what am I trying to say because I was wanting to um bring it back to Booker T essentially by saying that um I think is I like I I I think his I think what he what he championed was actually much more was actually was I think what he championed doesn't get the recognition that it really should get. Um and yeah, he yeah, I, I do like the idea of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't. I ain't no, I don't like the idea of pulling myself up by my no bootstraps. No. It's just a personal thing for me. Be, like just but maybe <laughs> Mm-mm. I don't even own no bootstraps. I ain't <laughs> never had no boots with no straps on. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say I'm glorifying, you know, struggling to get to where you're at, but you know, just kind of like putting in that hard, like me personally, I don't mind putting in that hard work to get to where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Now, do I do I want to struggle doing it? No, absolutely not. I just want the same quality of life right. that my um my peers and my right, um, comrades right, right, have. Right. And I feel like my ancestors have struggled enough and I don't I don't feel like life should be this hard where I have to struggle or where I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I feel like give me what is old to me give you pay caesar what is old to caesar do you know that bible scripture <laughs> yes yeah. yes and that's this that's what i want for me and my people a soft life and i get that i understand that you have to be able to work hard in order to get what you want but it should not be now it should hard. not no 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 granted no i agree with you on that it shouldn't be this hard and unfortunately it is in some instances but as a whole as a whole as a whole as a community now I don't think that you know, I don't I I I don't glorify the struggle for any of us. Mm-hmm. But me personally, I think I just like putting in the work because it's helped me find myself or find who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. It's helped me become much more. It's helped me find. It's helped me understand my family's history. Through my research, right? I will tell you, continue. I mean, I talk, I mean, I've had this conversation with my grandfather. Um, and if he ever hears this, hey, grandfather, hey, pop, pop, I love you. Hey, pop, pop. Uh, <laughs> so we've had this conversation um, where he talked, where, you know, he he grew up, you know, the son of a sharecropper, right? Mm-hmm. And so. My mom too. He always, and so one thing that he's always championed was having access to those opportunities that he didn't get. So he's very big on education. So that's why, you know. I, I kind of, I feel like I'm really saying this to say that I feel like the embracing of the struggle, the embracing, like just embracing, like what your family has, like embracing what, like, you know, your older relatives, what your family has gone through up until that point. Yeah. Embrace it and just build up from it. So that's what I mean when I say I, I like putting up, working up from that bootstraps and like, like I am standing on the shoulders of my, my ancestors. ancestors who have done this and I'm just going to continue to work. But do I like glorify like us, like putting on our bootstraps and like working from the ground up, you know, just to get to, just to get to, <laughs> just to get nowhere. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't advocate it. 
I will say this, um, and this is not uh, this mindset is not something that you really see until you get to the civil rights era or the black power era, where it's this idea of supporting the struggle or embracing the struggle. And you see this a lot with uh, Asada Shakur mm -hmm. and her last name Shakur means she who struggles and it is something that is highly celebrated as well as highly anticipated by black activists and leaders but we ain't got to that point in history yet mm -hmm. niggas is purely just struggling <laughs> whether they embrace it or not so i understand where you're coming from and i think that it is very poetic because it's something that we all have to do. We all have to struggle, especially as black people. But just because we have to does not mean mm -hmm. that it has to be this way. Yeah, it, it abs and I absolutely agree with that. It doesn't have to be this way at all. So let's take this question and like flip it on its head. Because we are now within segregation. And now we have these leaders um, of the black community who have... Um, put themselves in positions of power. And we just talked about um, Booker T. Washington, um, Ida B. Wells. We know Fannie Lou Hamer is a great example of uh, leadership within this time period. But more importantly, I want to talk about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Talented Tenth because it was created as a way to help uplift black people within this time period and i just kind of want to hear your thought on their thoughts on web the boys and the talented tenth and like talk about how the effects of the talented tenth can still be seen today okay so web the boys was a contemporary of booker t washington right so he Whereas Booker T. Washington um, advocated for an industrial education, um, he uh, advocated for more of a classical education. So it's like this emphasis on the arts, right, as opposed to emphasis on like agricultural and industrial and, um, and teaching and well, vocational teaching. I think comes into um, industrial education. I know for my um, alma mater, it did, but uh, so for him. Because the way I interpreted the talented tense from W.E.B. Du Bois is that it comes off as kind of classist. It's very much classist. When you think about it, because I think his his goal was to use classical education to establish this, I won't call it an oligarchy, but just establish this group of educated black men who black could bourgeoisie. who could lead uh black people and be um, the representatives yeah to essentially represent to lead black people to cultivate this learned persona i'd say mm -hmm. um and again you you have to look at it like this again i go back to this thing where i say it's easy to say that it's easy to say that booker t was pandering but again, Booker T was the son of slaves. He was a former slave himself. Managed to, man, in spite of all that, managed to establish the Tuskegee Institute and establish contacts with, uh, establish rapport with the federal government mm -hmm. through agriculture. When you think about it compared to W.E.B. Du Bois, who grew up quite privileged, graduated. Yes, his daddy was a slave master. Graduated Ivy League. Yep. He was put in positions of power. Put in. in it, he had those connections. So it's so. I feel like it'd be up to. I feel the way I'd want to say this is that, you know, I'm not here to influence 
anybody, our your our listeners' uh, minds when it comes to W.E.B. Du Bois or Booker T. Washington. But what I am saying is that you know, it try to try to understand the nuance and their backgrounds and why they and why they think the way that they do. Very much. What I always tell people is this. If Booker T. Washington and the Townsend 10th, well, if W.E.B. Du Bois and the Townsend 10th was still were around today or if we were in the American South during that time period, he wouldn't have gave a fuck about us. He wouldn't have cared about us because we were not in the top 10 percentile. None of us would be in the top 10 percentile of blacks, African-Americans, nor would we have the money. And the thing about it is during this time period, you see the cultivation of the NAACP. And in the first years of the NAACP, they were not protecting the the bottom 90% at all. Mm-hmm. So that is when you see like um, Ella Baker coming in and coming into the Mississippi, coming into Mississippi, making sure she advocated for the 90 percentile. So if we were in that time period, he wouldn't have cared about us. And then you see this lasting legacy of W.E.B. Du Bois through black excellence. And that's something that everybody wants to praise. And it gets to this point where no one wants to celebrate black mediocrity. And it puts so much pressure on black people to be excellent. And, and, and people don't interact with things that they don't feel like are excellent. And I feel like it diminishes the power in which the things that we create unless it's superb. And I feel like excellence is a subject. I feel like excellence can be subjective because who's to say that, you know, what I do, you know, who, what am I trying to say? So, so excellence can be subjective, right? Who who defines excellence? Who defines what is excellent? White supremacy, white culture. And that's the thing with W.E.B. Du Bois. It's like when you get to put in and you saying if you don't have a classical degree, if you're not trained in the arts and you're not trained within like Greek literature and all this shit, then you're not excellent. But all this shit is based upon white supremacy and it's based upon respectability politics. I understand that like during this time period, respectability politics the politics of respectability was important because in order for black people within the top 10% felt like if they weren't respected by white people, they would not get respect at all, like in general. So they used it in order to gain like respect. But I feel like the lingering legacy has crippled us as a whole. I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword. Most, 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 most assuredly. Um, Strive. I, I won't say strive for black excellence. I say strive to be the best person that you could possibly be. And the best person that you could possibly be, that's only for you to decide. So, yes, I think, you know, black excellence, I mean, there's nothing wrong with striving to be excellent, quote unquote, because, again, I think excellence is subjective. But my thing is don't, don't, don't strive, don't do it to the point where you're just exhausting yourself out. Um, and I think on the, and I think on the other, um, and I think on the other side of it is that in this, um, in this, in this push to embrace black excellency, like you mentioned before, we don't, we don't embrace those who are okay with not striving for black excellency because it's 
perhaps they've reached it. And I don't even like to, and personally, I don't like to use the word mediocrity because I'm just like, like I said, excellence. Who defines mediocrity? Yeah, who, who defines mediocrity? Um, who defines excellence? It's, 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 it, it varies by person. It's, to me, as a whole, is measured by the matrix of white supremacy. And again, you see the cultivation of the NAACP. You see the cultivation of the these divine nine Greek organizations that all support this idea that if you're not here, you're not it. And again, I feel like it is hurtless in so many ways because it's like that was the top way to be able to do it. So all other ways were looked down upon different, trying to find different ways to be able to support the culture. And like, it was frowned upon and it still is in so many ways. Hey, I mean, I, okay. Yeah. I also, because let's, let's, let's get into it mm-hmm. because even with W.E.B. Du Bois's daughter, um, and here's a little tea for the niggas in the back. So W.E.B. Du Bois actually forced his daughter to get married um, to a black aristocrat. And um, he was gay. And his daughter wanted to marry another black man, but he wasn't excellent enough for Du Bois. So he forced his daughter into an arranged marriage. And then they knew on the low that something was a little sweet about mm-hmm. the boy and then uh, it was one of the largest weddings within this time period whatsoever so who was who was there and then like two three years later the boy cheated on her publicly with another black man brought shame all over this family but my thing is is if you did not put her on such a pedestal if you had just allowed her to be herself and to be her own form of excellence you would have avoided this entire debacle and if you guys would like to read more about this story i do recommend the book gay new york that is an excellent book and it also talks about harlem as both a it's both interesting and it's both it exists on the fringes in terms of lgbtq but the fact that it exists on the fringes is what makes it so interesting right it exists on the fringes in terms of like lbgq lbgtq um relations in new york around this time but it's also because of this that there was so much attention brought to harlem not only as a not only you know for the harlem renaissance most most especially for the harlem renaissance but you know because of their um because of their um i want stance thoughts beliefs sentiments as it came to um the LGBTQ community, right? So, yeah. Black excellence is dope, but black regularness is good too. We ain't gotta be magical and magnificent every day. Sometimes just being is enough because that constant drive of being magnificent and magical can cause exhaustion. And exhaustion ain't good for nobody, especially when we know it's gonna tap into your creativity. And if we dig in a little deeper, who gets to define what it means to be black excellence and what attributes are they made of? Who created the notions of magnificence that we strive for? Because you know the idea that we got to work twice as hard to get half as much? Yeah, that notion is rooted in black excellence, and I'm going to say that it leads to exhaustion. The point of this video is to not get lost in the sauce of the hustle so much where you always striving for the future and you forget to appreciate what's going on around you. You feel me? And sometimes the most productive thing you can do is rest and worry about this being regular, schmegular, degular. Education is elevation. And hey, you do me a favor. We're talking about the Harlem Renaissance, Key. 
what exactly is the Harlem Renaissance and what factors contributed to the creation of this Renaissance? So the Harlem Renaissance um, at the turn of the century was a movement that um, a movement that used the arts to praise, uplift, to recognize the black American identity. I love this time period, again, just because, number one, I feel like when we think about, like, exciting parts of our Black history, I feel like we often overlook the Harlem Renaissance because there was such an exciting time to be alive. I know that um, in Ella Baker's book, in her early 20s, she lived in Harlem, Mm -hmm. and she explored and she talked about how she was intellectually inspired and how a lot of the things that she learned in Harlem during this time period really changed the way that she took to her advocacy, which Mm -hmm. led her eventually coming down to Mississippi and helping register Mississippians to be able to vote. So, like, what are the things that are a result of the Harlem Renaissance? I mean, there is a... I mean... What I see, what I took from the Harlem Renaissance was that there was an increased appreciation for um, our roots, right? So you see this, so you see this transformation of black people from enslaved, heavily oppressed, and that's not to say that they're still oppressed during the time of the Harlem Renaissance, but you see them going from being oppressed, um, forcibly so, to transforming into these, to these, to these learned, intellectual, thought-provoking, conscious, conscious people, conscious beings, right? Um, these these learned individuals are over here teaching you, they, the New Negro, right? The New Negro movement, which was inspired to, which 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 essentially is the basis of the Harlem Renaissance, which is inspiring them to embrace. Their, what is the New Negro movement? Let's start there. So it was a move. So it um it was a move, an intellectual movement um that inspired that that was meant to inspire um African Americans to again embrace embrace this. What do I want to say? I want to call it a cultural shift, but just to embrace this new identity or as a learned person, while also as I interpret, while also, you know, paying homage to their roots, right? Yes, so I did want to bring up the idea of nationalism because Mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is. So the idea of nationalism is taking something from the past and repackaging it or modernizing it to fit modern culture, but still paying homage to those who come before us. And that's something that we see in music time and time again. Right. So like you would see, you would hear the incorporation of a slave holler or work for a song and it's flipped on its head. And then you see the innovation of jazz, blues, swing, dance music. And like, it's just a powerful way because mm-hmm. black women and black men were also very sexually liberated during this time period mm-hmm. as well. And it's overlooked a lot. I just, I love it because it has a different essence, a different aura mm-hmm. attached to it. And black people were on top for like one of the first times within mm-hmm. this American mm-hmm. history. Right. And um, also to, and also what I didn't add is that one of the main leaders of it, it came from, um, it took his namesake from, is it, is it Elaine Locke? Alan Locke, 
don't hold me to it because he was one of the uh, one of the most of uh, the foremost um, thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance. And so, essentially, um, the the New Negro and the New Negro movement was 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 meant to help was meant to was meant to allow Black Americans to cultivate this attitude of change, this attitude of progression. And I mean, in many ways. We can we can talk about it, or it's probably a conversation for another day. Whatever, whichever one you think, whichever one um suits you. But I mean, in many ways, the black the the, the Harlem Renaissance pretty much helped lay that foundation for the civil rights movement. Of course, it because did. it established that cultural that cultural, political, socioeconomic stronghold or foundation for us to demand better. It's just a switch. As right. You emancipated two, three decades later, we some of the smartest motherfuckers to be found on the continent. The Harlem Renaissance was a period between the 1910s and the mid-1930s, where the Harlem neighborhood in New York City was transformed into the black cultural mecca. By 1920, several hundred thousand black people had moved to the Harlem neighborhood. And this resulted in black thought leaders, actors, musicians, artists, banding together to showcase their talents, thus creating a cultural movement and phenomenon never seen before. This boom in population was the result of the Great Migration, black people moving north, not only to flee the Jim Crow South, but to also look for business and employment opportunities, were left vacant as a result of World War I. This was truly the golden age for black artists. It lasted roughly 20 years and helped catapult us into the civil rights movement. Harlem Renaissance was so important because it was one of the first times that black people were able to take ownership of their art and it was accepted on a grand stage. What legacy and impact did the Harlem Renaissance have on the black community? I mean, um, well, a lot of the writers that emerged from it, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, I mean, those their works are still in circulation. To this the, day. There's still a heavy appreciation for it, especially as we explore... You know our roots here in the deep south there's an appreciation for just um black culture especially culture like folk black american folk culture yes most definitely that um again it, it helped lay that for me that intellectual foundation for the civil rights movement right mm -hmm. um and i think those i think those are like the main the main points right and I mean, it also helped encourage. Uh, it also helped encourage because we don't we don't talk about this as much either. There were there were um, an there was an exodus of black intellectuals going into Paris too, it because was. a lot of them because a lot of because a lot of the in Paris the movement in Paris really mirrored the Harlem Renaissance, right? Yeah. So you do have this like this transcontinental exchange of culture of black of, of culture. I mean, if you want to call it Black American, Black Parisian culture, hey, up to you. But you do see like this transcontinental cultural exchange. You do see this transcontinental appreciation for Black literature, music, dancing, what have you. And I mean, you also have, you know, the popularity, the emergence of the greats like Josephine Baker, for instance, right? Yes. Just, you have all these people who are breaking down racial boundaries or help us or, or allowing or establishing that foundation for other for for up and coming um, black black minds to break that racial found uh, that racial barrier. So I think that there's a lot that the, the Harlem Renaissance left on. I think the legacy that the Harlem Renaissance left is very important and deeply lasting 
um, a deeply lasting legacy. I know we tend to talk about, you know, like stuff like the civil rights movement. And don't get me wrong, we, we should talk about it. But I think, you know, we should always talk about, well, here's the intellectual predecessor to that. And that's the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, I, I love like just Josephine Faker's story as a whole. That bitch was talented. She's a singer, spy, dancer, dancer, and like I very re- beautiful. And she was an intellectual being. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like, and it's something that is quintessential Renaissance woman, right? <laughs> and you can, and you see her impact. I literally just saw um, one of my favorite drag queens, Monique Hart. If mm-hmm. anybody is a RuPaul Drag Race fan, he did a homage to Josephine Baker and one of um, her costumes. Like banana skirt, mm-hmm. doing the wild flipped hair and everything, and I just love that for us mm-hmm. as a people. Um, and that is something that you see in Paris as a safe haven for a lot of Black intellectuals, especially like moving in from the Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance into the Civil Rights Movement too, mm-hmm. because um, even um, Lord Nina Simone mm-hmm. spent such a large proportion of her life, even like after her divorce in Paris. As well as, you know, places in Africa. I think she went to um, Liberia for a while. Um, but I just, I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, as, and also, well, in many ways, the Harlem Renaissance broke racial boundaries, too. Because there were a lot of white, there were a lot of white people at that time who were very much invested financially and what have you so into the Harlem Renaissance? You know what? We really shouldn't talk about like the music, those men who integrated the music and stuff with the swing and how they were at these dance halls and the dance halls were split down the middle, mm-hmm. whites on one side, blacks on the other side, and their music created so much of an uproar that they integrated themselves because they, they had jungle fever and they was trying to um get over there to the black to the black meat. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> If I'm lying, I'm flying. <laughs> what Gates said, strike me down, kill all my kids right now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got, and I, and yeah, that, that that goes back to just the, the the interracial interest in this, right? So, I mean, of course, something that's so innovative and new and just lively, of course, that's going to bring interest in it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean. I wouldn't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Who are the three top notable leaders and speakers of this time period? If anybody's interested in learning more about this time period, who would you point them to? First and foremost, I'd point them to Zora Neale Hurston, um, especially because a a lot of her, um, a lot of her, um, work touched upon just 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 folk culture right what she do culture what she do like like for instance there what was it their eyes were watching god so she was a literature writer right so she was she was she was um she was a writer uh we all know langston hughes right Mm -hmm. um i just everybody don't know langston hughes what he do what was his day job he was poet he was a poet and we know it That's how he did. He wrote a little uh, sonograms. Sonograms. Ain't that what they call? (laughs) Sonograms. Sonnets. Yeah, little sonograms. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, he was. He was. He was. He was a writer. He was an intellect too. Mm -hmm. Um, I know. I mentioned uh, 
Elaine Locke, uh, Jean Toomer, who um, who who are both writers as well, black intellects as well. Um, and again, Elaine Locke is from where they get the New Negro movement from because a lot of it, because he has a collection of essays that championed that championed this cultural change mm-hmm. for um, from Africa for African uh, for for, for African Americans. Um, and Jean Toomer did the same too. What she do? What was her um, day job? Actually, he was a. Um, oh, that was a nigga. My bad. <laughs> um, he wasn't. He was an educator. Um, he actually worked in Sparta, Georgia. No, yes. this is Sparta. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> but yeah, he worked as an he worked as an educator uh, in Sparta, Georgia, and so a lot of his work also tended to uh, center around these themes of just folk life, Southern life, and exploring those changes. Um, especially as he his work also especially as his work as an educator dealt with industrial education too Mm. so a lot of them so essentially their main themes are looking at this new embracing this new learned individual embracing the arts embracing a much more a, a classical approach right while not well not ignoring where we came from mm-hmm. which was you know much more agricultural and industrial based so i think that there is a i think it i think these writers do their due diligence i think the harlem renaissance in general just does its due diligence and allowing us to cultivate both right mm-hmm. so you know it's not either or it's you can you can you can you know have enjoy a classical education and you can also Enjoy the benefits of an industrial education too. That's beautiful. Right. Um Thank me, you. <laughs> <laughs> me me myself personally, I'm going with the big three, the baddest mm-hmm. bitches of uh this time period for me is gonna be Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Ella Baker before the civil rights movement. Okay. Yeah, I love them bitches. Them some badass women's. Um yeah, that's how I feel about that. And I feel like I don't need to explain who they are. And if you don't know who they are, you need to kiss my ass the whole month mm-hmm. of February. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And let me not. And let me also add to because I just kind of feel like let me not do my boy Langston Hughes wrong. So not only he was a writer, he wrote, he was playwright, poet, all that, and then some. He was an intellect. Yeah, they. I'll say it like this: they were all Renaissance men and women. What they mean? What what are you implying? So when someone says that they're a Renaissance man, it's a um, it's someone who's multi. It, they're multifaceted, so they're talented in a in a in a variety of areas. Oh. Areas. So when I say Renaissance man or Renaissance and Renaissance woman, when it comes to these um, when it comes to these uh, prominent leaders, I'm saying that they were, in terms of when we think about the arts, that they were very multifaceted, talented individuals, talented, intelligent. Thought-provoking individuals. Love it. I think mm-hmm. that's a great way to wrap that up. This shit's fire. Thank you. Oh, Key, I want to thank you so much for choosing to be Afrocentric today. <laughs> yes, I'm really glad that you were here and we were able to talk about the mysteries and the wonders of the period after emancipation, reconstruction, as well as the Black Renaissance, the Harlem Renaissance. Um, so thank you for being here today. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, there's no problem. You know, I got you here to keep the lights on, baby. <laughs> okay. 
I just wanted to know if there was anything you would like to say to the Negroes during Negro History Month <laughs> for the colored people. Ink. Um, I would just say, you know, for me personally, I just say, you know, explore your roots. Um, you know, explore other, you know, black intellects or or black inventors, black industrialists, explore other uh, black figures that we don't talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to, say, the Harlem Renaissance, you know, explore explore the themes that all of these black intellects were talking about, right? Um, explore their words, because I, who knows? I feel like you can apply, you know, some of their writings to today right and get your hands on them before they wipe out crt (laughs) you can apply some of their um you you can you can you can perhaps apply some of what they wrote to your own life you uh to your own life perhaps that'll use it to find you know establish some relatability with you you know and your family like okay so how did what they went through you know parallel to what some of my elder family members went through or how does it help me see like the el- older generation in a different light? And I also say, you know, explore the nuances, right? Like when we, when going back to the Booker T W E B Du Bois debate, like I said, it's easy to paint Booker T in a derogatory a light or yeah. a point, uh, uh, or use or call Uncle him an Uncle Tom, Tom or what have mm-hmm. you. But like I said, you have to look at the background and you have to look at why they arrived to the um to the school of thought that they did so i think you know for black history month explore explore the nuances i feel like that helps flesh out these historical figures even more and i think that it helps you know it, it'll and i think it'll most definitely help you individually as well that's beautiful key well thank i you. thank you again for choosing to be Afrocentric today. And for those who are listening, please remember during the month of February and every other month of the year that black lives do indeed matter. Make sure to listen and to protect black women. And the only thing that you must do in this lifetime is be black and die. I love y'all, okay? And remember here at the Afrocentric Podcast, we're just civilized people having civilized conversations. (laughs) Exactly. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America.